From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Timothy Chalamet. It's a great name, isn't it? Timothy Chalamet. He took me by the hand and linked me for a picture and then he sort of bowed down in yeah. front then. <laughs> Courtseyed. He courtseyed. And said, he did. And he said, I'm in the presence of royalty. What is it? Don't, it couldn't be. Is it, is your phone missing? Yeah, yeah. I can hardly breathe. I can't find my phone. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Timothy Chalamet. You really can't say his name too many times. Quiet quitting. Is it a good move for your career or do you just not care? And when Bono comes over to tell you not to stay out too late. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's well, really not that keen on going the extra mile now that you mention it. The newsings on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show included a detailed ramble on the intricacies of British politics as Liz Truss was formally beatified as their next Prime Minister. I was watching this morning Boris Johnson outside Downing Street delivering his last speech as Prime Minister. Liz Truss, <laughs> look, not every leader has to be a great orator and I think that Liz Truss has some work to do and she'll get there, I'm no doubt. Uh, good luck and all of that. Isn't it amazing though, I was thinking that think of all the female Taoiseach we've had in, oh, and the British have had three. This is their third female Prime Minister. Like for all the given out we do, it is their third, you know, Margaret Thatcher, obviously, and Theresa May, and now uh, Liz Truss. So it's pretty progressive, I would have thought, and uh, she gets the job now. She is going to go and visit the formidable, I say that as a compliment actually, Queen Elizabeth II, in Balmoral, she's a little frail to to, to be in Buckingham Palace. Uh, so they'll get two helicopters. Obviously, Boris goes first and hands in his resignation. And then Liz Truss goes in. And that's for security reasons, as I understand it. So they can't go together. It's not that they're trying to destroy the planet, you know, together. They're just simply, if one goes down, you can't have that happening. If the other one's sitting beside them, that'd be catastrophic. So they'll go in there now, just and John, as John Kilrain said there, they, they have the ceremony called the kissing of the hands. I didn't know about that. But no hands are kissed in the making of the ceremony, so they should probably rename it. I don't know. The nodding of the face, maybe, or the pumping of the fist, as it were. Uh, I'm not sure what what they do, or the, or the touching of the elbow, but certainly kissing of the hands is, is the name of the ceremony. And then she gets the nuclear codes, which actually scared me when I heard that, because I don't want to hear about nuclear codes, especially at the moment. It's happening around the world. I don't want anyone to have the nuclear codes, and if it's got to be somebody, make sure it's somebody who's got the who's got the uh, the chops. <laughs> so Liz Truss will be Elizabeth's Queen Elizabeth's fifteenth Prime Minister. Imagine that! Didn't in the, the great scene in the movie where Helen Mirren turns to Michael Sheen—that is to say, the Queen to to Blair—and says something like, "You're my twelfth, or you're my tenth. and she's seen them all come and go. But here's her fifteenth. Is listening to. A kind of a, a Tory podcast last night. I listened to The Guardian sometimes for the left and then The Spectator for the right to try and balance my views on the British political system. And The, the Spectator podcast were saying, we, they were wondering, would she last until Easter? You know, they're saying this could be really short, a short, short uh, reign. Um, and I could watch, I was watching Boris today and I said, I bet you, they didn't, wa- really, the Tory membership didn't really want Boris to go, as far as I can see. And there was just a momentum that got rid of him. And I'm telling you, I've nearly put five pounds sterling on Boris making a comeback. I, there's something in the air 
the world's gone so mad. If you asked me 10 years ago, would such a thing happen? I'd say, no, no, precedent. I mean, but it's gone so crazy. Trump may well make a comeback. Boris may well make a comeback. This is, all bets are off on the political landscape because the world has just gone so crazy, as you know. Anyway, she'll take over. She'll be prime minister in the next couple of hours. And um, so begins the trust era in 10 Downing Street. Amazing. I find it so fascinating. I can't stop watching. Well, that makes one of us, Ryan. <clears throat> On to a fabulously meandering stream of consciousness monologue inspired by... Timothy Chalamet. You heard it. Timothy Chalamet. And it won't be the last time you'll hear it today either. Once more for the cheap seats. Timothy Chalamet. It's a great name, isn't it? Timothy Chalamet. Uh, who's a great actor, incidentally. Have you seen Dune? Great, Dune's a great film. Dune, let me just go and sit on the side. Dune stayed with me because it was such a trip. I got to the cinema. Don't know what it was. I no, that was the French Dispatch, which he's in too. Actually, that was tea and and, and chocolate. I went to the cinema, it was popcorn and coke, and it was just so beautiful and the colors and the music and the acting. And I tell you what. If I had watched that on a small screen, I, I would have been distracted. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I would have been wasting my time and my energy and my money. So absolutely uh, doomed for the cinema. Timothy Chalamet, I'll say it again, uh, has said, and now he's remembering he's 26 years old. I don't know if that matters to this point, but he's, well, it does actually, because he's a digital native, essentially. So he was born into this whole thing, essentially. And he's been slamming social media's effects on society. And he was at, again at the film festival in Venice. Uh, he said he talked about feeling intensely judged due to massive pressures on the platforms. He said to be young now and to be young whenever, I can only speak for my generation, is to be intensely judged. And he said that uh, he was in a, he's in a film called Bones and All, which is set in the 1980s. And that's important because that's where these comments come from. Uh, in the 1980s, before the engulfing emergence of social media. And he said it was a relief to play characters who grew up in a time long before platforms like Instagram and TikTok existed. Now, I'm not anti-Instagram. I'll say it again. I'm on it. I like it. But on my own terms. I'm not on it too much. Just enough. I'm not on TikTok, so to speak, but we have a TikTok account for the Late Late Show and it's good fun. So this is not an anti-social media rant. I'm just simply saying that Timothy Chalamet is saying that he's enjoying playing, enjoy playing this role of an 80s kid who didn't have to contend with all that. And that made me reflect on, and people my age will appreciate this, life growing up as a kid in the 80s uh, was, when you think of it, so peaceful and so less dependent on that thing in your hand, the 11th digit, the phone. And the panic, I, I was asking somebody the other day, have they come up with a word yet for the English language where you think you've lost your phone for 3.5 seconds. You know that panic? You think, oh my God, has your car been stolen? No, no, it's worse than that. Have your family been abducted and, and, and sent to the bottom of the ocean? No, 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 I wouldn't be worried about that. It's much worse than that. What is it? Don't, it couldn't be. Is it, is your phone missing? Yeah, yeah, I can hardly breathe. I can't find my phone. What is the word where you can't find your phone, albeit briefly? It's just such a panic. It's a horrible feeling. And it's terrible, but that's where we are. So equally, back to Timothy Chalamet. That's probably the 10th time I've said his name today, and I don't mind. I quite like it. It sounds good. Um, he's saying, God, it must have been lovely to grow up in the 80s. Here's my message to Timothy. It was. 
It was. We got two. Ger- I'm going to be nostalgic and rosy tinted glass. We got two jumpers from the school uniform, put them six foot beside aside from each other and played three and in or World Cup if there was enough of you. You know, we collected conkers with, with like sticks, hit the branches and they came down, put them in a Quinsworth bag, put them near the immersion. I don't know why, but we did. And no, and no one went on Twitter to say, you're an idiot because of doing that. You just had your friends and they said, that's great. We're friends. We got on a bike. Stra- if you want to, what were you like as a kid? Just watch Stranger Things. <laughs> Pretty much got my childhood. Wasn't far off. Ryan Turbody's message to Timothy Chalamet. Marvellous. But let's get on to the top story of the weekend ahead. Are you all excited about Garth Brooks? Can't wait. I mean, a lot of people will be going to see Garth Brooks in the next few weeks. So all I tell you, according to the Irish Mirror this morning, is that Aiken Promotions boss Peter Aiken has revealed that Garth Brooks is nervous ahead of his five gigs at Croke Park and said that the amount of money that has been spent on the stage for this gig is, quote unquote, obscene. Which means that's a good thing, by the way, um, I, I, I think. So it's going to be it's going to be one hell of a night or, or five nights and a great show. I have no doubt. And if it's, if it's an obscene amount of money on stage, it's going to be quite the, quite the show. First it was Timothée Chalamet. Now it's Harry Styles. This film, Don't Worry Darling, stars Harry Styles. And it also stars Olivia Wilde who, and, and Florence Pugh and um, Chris Pine. And from what I gather, there's behind the scenes drama that has led to everyone's kind of watching the, the what's happening at the press conferences and the, the junkets and so on, rather than the actual film themselves. So the whole subplot of this story is the promotion promotional work around it, where there's a lot of rows and cold shouldering and unhappiness. And I think Harry is getting tired because I'm not sure what he's talking about here when he was describing the film you know my favorite thing about the movie is like it feels like a like a movie it feels like a real like you know go to the theater film movie that you know you you kind of the reason why you go to watch something on the big screen Mm. yeah i i I think I know what he's trying to say because I I do ramble myself uh, on occasion by on occasion I mean every morning so I, I, I think he's just saying go and see it on the big screen because don't waste don't go and see it but either way a bit of rest there we all need that sometimes too Indeed I think we've put an end to the musings on the news the newsings get it from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show right there I mean Chalamet Styles, Liz Truss what more could you want? This morning, Claire Byrne was joined by League of Ireland superfans Sean Cotter and Samantha Libreri, as well as by Kira Losty, course leader for the MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, South East Technological University, to talk about the highs and lows of following your team through a season. Claire started with Sean, a lifelong Dundalk supporter. So would have obviously started going when I was younger, a lot uh, younger initially with my family, and then kind of I guess the obsession or the fandom really kicked in um in 2013 when Stephen Kenny arrived or he was appointed as the lock manager and uh yeah since then it's kind of been uh yeah weekly obsession and uh so, and lifestyle. So 2013 your your fandom went to yeah, ob- so obsession. I would have been 12 uh, at the time and 21 now so since then kind of been 
a big part of my life and um, it was kind of hard not to, everyone in the dock kind of got the bug because especially when the team started playing so well and the success and the brand of football and then trophies and everything else and mm-hmm. um, it was infectious, you know, how the positivity around associated with the club. And how dedicated are you? Well, I mean, you know, travelling around the country and um, I think it's dedication within the family. Um, all my uncles and uh, grandfather and cousins, we all would go to the games on Friday nights and um, organise trips to Derry and Sligo and Cork and this type of thing. So, yeah, it's a big commitment, but it's um, something everyone's so um, glad to be doing. And, so, and when they win, obviously, it's great, as I was saying. But yeah. when they lose on a Friday night, does it affect your week? Uh, yeah, I guess it does in some sense. Um, so, yeah, like whenever they do lose, it can be... Um, devastating depending on how they lose um, and who they lose to right? yeah especially with maybe Shamrock Rovers here Samantha <laughs> beside me um, but uh, like you know you kind of have to have the positivity that there's a game next Friday and hopefully they can you know win and um, the positivity will be back the negativity yeah. will never drive you yeah. away I think anyway so Samantha you've been a Shamrock Rovers fan since you were about 11 yes yeah, so How, similar to Sean started yeah. going when with my dad when I was 11 years old it was mm. just off the back of Italia 90 and USA 94 so I was a bit of a tomboy I, I hung out with a lot of boys when I was younger I didn't play football but I and you're from the wrong side and of the I'm city. from the wrong side of the city I'm from the north side so but my dad had started supporting Rovers in a similar way his father had brought him to a game when he was about nine years old um, because Rovers were in the middle of a a winning streak in the 1960s. So he, you know, hitched his wagon to that um, particular um, gang and went on and uh, his brothers are all Bose fans. So it's a, you know, source of contention within the family. But I went to my first game, which was Shamrock Rovers versus Bohemians in Daly Mount Park when I was 11. And my dad is a a very reserved, very quiet individual um, and very polite. Um, And I went along and just witnessed the absolute losing of his mind and all the men around him. And it was all men. um, And it was just the atmosphere and the whole thing was intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And from the very first game, I was hooked and... 28 years later, I'm still going. And you really are hooked, aren't you? Well, I am, yeah. Like, it's more difficult now for me to go to games. I have two small children and, you know, work commitments and things like that. But I go as often as I can. And it's a big part of my identity with Shamrock Rovers. It always has been over the years. And, you know, we were talking outside myself and Sean about the highs and lows. And, you know, I followed the club. When I went in 94, Rovers won the league that year. And I thought that was going to happen forever. But I had to wait 16 years to see them win anything again. (laughs) They didn't win a cup until I was... you know, in my late 30s. So, you know, I, I saw the, the club went through a lot of things, examinership. It was on the brink of of going out of existence. We were relegated for the first time in our history. I watched an awful lot of bad football over the years and I don't think anyone in Shamrock Rovers would um, mind me saying that. Um, but then we had, you know, a revival. We moved to Tallis Stadium in 2009. Um, we got into the group stages of the Europa League, the first club to do it before Dundalk got there um, and oh, went on these amazing away trips to White Hart Lane to see Tottenham Hot Spurs. We played Juventus. Um, we had Real Madrid come to Tallis the Stadium. The excitement of it all. So there was just, yeah, there, you know, I've got to experience some great highs, but some mm-hmm. substantial lows as well. Well, I'm watching Welcome to Wrexham at the moment, which I don't know if you've seen oh, with the yeah. two Hollywood stars buying the club yeah, in yeah, Wales. Yeah. And you can just see the devotion. They've been through some really, really tough times there as well. But you, you, you do begin to understand the passion and the hard times. That's when the fans are really needed, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, um, particularly in Dundalk, uh, you know, the good times weren't always there. And um, the 
fans really feel it because I guess outside of the club, um, the players are so visible within the community and like a lot of them live in Dundalk, the mm -hmm. town itself. So, you know, I guess they would feel it as well whenever they lose a game or it's not going well, they'll be meeting fans down in the square in Dundalk and they'll let them know how they're feeling and... Um, that works both ways when they're doing well. You yeah, know, and the community yeah. links are there and it's very that's why it's very different to Premiership Club where you yeah. mightn't see them in your local community. Kira, from your point of view, is it good for you to be a fan? Absolutely. Uh, good morning, Claire. Uh, some great points made by your contributors there. There's lots of psychological and social benefits for being a fan, a sports fan. And the importance many of us placed in sport really became clear when COVID restrictions led to the suspension of sporting events. Um, but being a sports fan can satisfy some of the most basic psychological needs, uh, such as the need to belong, the need for self-esteem, the need for control and the need for meaningful existence. And the guys there really did mention both the identity pieces as well. And the more we identify with our team, the more our feelings are connected to the performance. So we do get wrapped up in the emotions of how our team is actually performing but that actually is kind of a critical psychological variable because it really correlates positively to both mental and physical health because it kind of helps us define and give, gives us some meaning and purpose in our life to something that's maybe bigger than us. Yeah but I, I mean I was talking to Sean there about the, the Friday nights when the team loses and maybe that affects you for the week. I mean are there any negatives to the whole experience of being a fan or a super fan? There, there are, yeah. There are some really interesting studies that look at some of the physiological responses of the fans when they're actually watching games. Um, and some research has explored uh, particularly international soccer and they've identified a number of physiological responses when you're actually watching matches such as heightened cortisol. You've probably heard of that because of the stress. Uh, the stress hormone increases in testosterone levels on actual match days, so a little bit similar to some of the players that increased actually um, rates of heart attacks following major games. So there is kind of a physiological response coming so emotionally connected. Yeah, that's a pretty big uh, one. To, to our team. <laughs> pretty, pretty big, yeah. And I suppose if you're so prolonged any kind of prolonged release of cortisol when we experience stress over a long period of time will affect maybe your immune system as well. So if you're a highly committed fan who's getting overly angry or overly excited, you need to be aware maybe that too much cortisol over a prolonged period actually could be detrimental to your health. That's Kira Losty, course leader for the MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology at South East Technological University, telling fellow Today with Claire Byrne guests Samantha Library and Sean Cotter that they're taking their life in their hands by being League of Ireland's super fans. That's the message I got out of it anyway. U2 frontman Bono stopped filming at his childhood home on Cedarwood Road in Glasnevin, Dublin, to pose for photos with Lucy Dunn, who's preparing to go to her Debs. Lucy and her mum Carol told Ray Darcy this afternoon how their encounter with the embodiment of Irish rock came about. So who's best at telling the story of what happened on Sunday before we go any further? Um, well, maybe I'll start off okay. and then Lucy can jump in. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was Lucy's Debs on um, Sunday and um, we had all the relations in the house here and Lucy had just come down the stairs in her lovely dress and uh, we were taking some photos out on the deck and her uncle and aunt had called but then they left 
and as they drove down the road, they just had a quick visit. As they drove down the road, they saw Bono outside, so they ran back to the house to let us know Bono was on the road. So within seconds, the whole house emptied, um, and we were all down the road, Lucy in her high heels running down the road to um, meet Bono. So um, that's how it all started, really. And um, we just got to the corner then, and we were speaking to one of his crew, and he said, if you hold on, um, there'd be no problem. We'd be able to get a photo of Lucy with Bono. So uh-huh. that's where, so we waited around then. So that's how it started. So, so the uncle is Trevor. So Trevor was leaving. He spotted, ran back up or drove back up. What? Crashed into the door going, Bono's on the road. Bono's on the road. <laughs> yeah, it was actually a phone yeah. call. Oh, was, was it right? Call, Bono's actually. on the road. Yeah. Bono's yeah. on the road, yeah. right. And of course, Bono is important in your house. Uh, more important now than he was prior to Sunday. But but uh, Derek, your husband, uh, Carl, and your dad, Lucy, he's a big U2 yeah. fan. Ha- he is. How big is he, fan. Lucy? How big a fan is he? <laughs> oh, he loves them. Yeah. He's been to a few of their concerts, listens to their songs all the time. Yeah. He was he was in his element yesterday. <laughs> okay. So Deb's on a Sunday, that's un- is that unusual now or, or not unusual? Yeah, I think it was a bit unusual. Yeah. yeah. And you're I'm just looking at you here. How would you it's a sort of a mermaid dress, is that how you describe it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, see, yeah, that's what everyone's saying. How, yeah. how do I know that? And and then it's it's off one shoulder. Yeah. And you look you look amazing. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, so here were you ready for your photograph. Little did you know yeah. it was going to be with Bono. Uh, I know. So, so, so go on. You go down to the corner and you speak I to the crew. To the corner. Yeah, yeah, and he's in the house at the time, is he? He was. Yeah, he's doing an interview outside, and then he went in to say hello to the family who live there now. Right. Um, and then he came back out afterwards, and his crew brought us over, brought him over to us, and he took me out and got a picture and all. <laughs> Go on, you have to give me all the details, <laughs> Lucy Dunn from Cedarwood Road. He, um, he took me by the hand and linked me for a picture and then he sort of bowed down in yeah. front then. Curtsied, he curtsied. <laughs> and said, he did, and he said I'm in the presence of royalty. Because you're a deputant, you're a deputant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he actually said that to her. He said, oh my God, the, de- the debutante, he said to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and was there a chat? Was he giving you any advice? Did he talk about his own daughters or what was he saying? No, he didn't really. He just said to enjoy the night. Yeah. Yeah, my dad was talking to him then about um, the road and the cherry blossom trees and stuff on the road. Yeah. Because uh, we were playing a bit. All this is to do with his memoir. So he's obviously making some sort of documentary around uh, his memoir is going to be released later on in the year, I think in October. Yeah. Uh, and he released another clip from it last week and he, he was talking about the day he got married to Ali and that was the day he left Cedarwood Road forever. Um, oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But in one of his songs, I, I think he has a song called Cedarwood he Road. Does. But he does. He, he also mentions the cherry blossoms on the road yeah. in one of his songs. So that's how Derek ended up talking to him about the trees on the road. It was yeah. a bit of random, but there, there was a connection there. <laughs> and are you gone viral with your mates, Lucy, that picture oh, of you? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am. I haven't even got a chance to reply to everyone. Yeah. It's mad. And, and yeah. how? what are they saying? Just, oh my God, can't believe it. How was Bono at your death? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually all her, all her friends' dads and uncles. Yes, and there he is. Yeah. And yeah. want to know the story as well, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, that that's, this story is going to grow legs over the years. So, you know, by, oh. the time, by the time you're talking to your, you know, 
grandchildren, if you're looking enough to live along and, and have grandchildren, you'll be yeah. saying that Bono did actually bring you to the to, yeah. to, to your dress. Yeah, that's the, that's the way things happen, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, how did you find him, Carol? Had you met him before? No, we'd never met him before. He has been on the road once or twice before, but we haven't been lucky enough to meet him. Yeah. Um, so that's why there was a mass exodus down when, when we heard he was on the road. But oh, he, he was very polite, very pleasant. Um, and took took his time, spoke to some of the older neighbours, the elderly neighbours on the road who were probably here when he was younger. Mm. And um, yeah, there was no rush and all his crew and all were really lovely. Like they took the time to talk to everybody yeah. and take a few photographs with um, people. So yeah, no, it was, it was really like a lovely experience. And for of course, it was, it was a lovely day as well. Uh, well, dare I say it, a beautiful day. A beautiful <laughs> day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just such a lovely, happy picture, Lucy. You must be, because you're just so joyous looking in that. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah, still looking at it now. I still can't believe it happened. Like, I haven't even gotten a chance to look at the and, pictures properly or anything. And, and the, the question, of course, over the years will be, who's happier, Lucy yeah. or Derek the dad? To me, no, yeah. <laughs> I'd say Derek. <laughs> yeah, Derek the dad probably Derek wins. the dad can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. No. And uh, how many people came out in the end? Um, there must have been a fair old, old crew oh, out. Oh, yeah, well... There was, I think, um, when they, when they heard, um, when they there was a few phone calls made to different people then, yeah. um, you know, and they came down then, and uh, so there probably was a good thirty or forty yeah. people there. Would there have been music? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, twenty from our house. And, so, and how did the Debs go? Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah. It was a great night. Yeah, I, I believe he told you to don't stay out too late, and you chose <laughs> you chose to ignore that advice, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we I told her the choice. same, and she ignored it. Kids these days, eh? Ignore their parents' wishes, ignore Bono's wishes. What can you do? That's Carol and Lucy Dunn telling Ray Darcy about their Cedarwood Road encounter with the man who gave birth to Irish rock and roll. Ken Evers is a tour guide with non-profit Secret Street Tours in Dublin. He joined Ryan Tuberty this morning to talk about homelessness and working for the agency he credits with saving his life. You know. Do you remember the first time you took heroin? Yeah, um, I was about eighteen, and uh, I, I, I'd um, used with all the guys, and uh, I was up, I went from Sars to Ballymore together, and uh, when I when I used it, I liked it, but I I didn't become like a heroin addict uh, straight away. I'd I'd always like um, I do it, and then I wouldn't do it then for a few weeks, and then mm. when I get really really burnt out from a session, like you know. And then, like, uh, and then I need something to come down. I'd go up to Ballymun and get more, get more hair on. And that, I got away with that for like a couple of years, but I, as I got older, like, it just kind of crept in a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. I was probably when I was in my late twenties. Then I kind of like it, it kind of hit. Then you know, it sounds like a spider trapping a fly. Yeah, it it does. It can either like uh, get you overnight or it can get you over time, like you know. And uh, it got me over time, like eventually, you know. What What is the kick in heroin? Why do Why do heroin actors become that? What What is it that? Where does it bring you? Uh, it just it, it it brings you uh, out of your mind where you're just like um where you don't have to think about life you're like uh you're like kind of like um you're just like kind of on a on a low but you don't like think about you don't care what's happening around you you know you could be in a hostel or you could be on the streets or you could be like in a tent and you wouldn't care because like you're on heroin like you know but the only time you care is when you're sick you know you've no you've no heroin and that's the time you care and then you go and get more heroin and you go back to that place again you know a vicious vicious circle. Yeah, and then once it gets a hold of you, it's like it's very, very hard to get off. And then uh, um, I ended up then on methadone. And then when I um, when I went, first went on methadone, I was told that I'd be on it for six months. And I ended up being on it for 15 years. 
and it, that was an extremely hard drug to come off like you know it was probably it's a lot harder to come off than um, heroin like but is, is methadone not meant to try and bring you off heroin no uh, well in, in that's why in my innocence I, I thought it was in, in my, in, with me like um, it, it keeps you tied to that whole scene because you're going to a methadone clinic every morning you're go, like you're going by an army of dealers who hang around there and then you're tied to all that circle like you know so like um to me, it was never like a, a solution. It was more of a problem, like you know. Yeah. And then with us being addicts, we found other ways of like uh, getting around methadone, like because we're a little bit ingenious in that sense, you know. Tell me about that. We would take um, benzos, and if you take benzos, then it stops the uh, methadone working. So you just take heroin and get even higher, like you know. Yes. So stuff like that, you know. So you find your way around. You find your way around. But, yeah. You know, you 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 a, a very cheeky grin came on your face when you said that because you're, you when you despite the fact that you can be you, you might be an addict, you, that doesn't make you stupid, and it doesn't make you um, less bright than anyone else. You're just using your brain to accommodate your addiction yeah definitely like i've met a lot of addicts and like, some of them like are geniuses you know like really really talented people like you know and um i found out then when i when i when, when i got clean there four years ago like um uh what the tours i'm doing the secret city tours if you see it there like i'm gonna tell ask you all about that in a minute yeah <laughs> but, but go on yes you were saying um all the the, the genius yeah yeah that stuff that i didn't think i, I had in me like you know kind of yeah. just came out like you know so it was always there, but I always suppressed it. Just like and, drugs. and numbed. Numbed it, yeah, You know, exactly. you describe heroin as saying that it just kind of shuts everything down. You know, you think mm. of um, it, it, the, the mathematics involved in being a, a, an addict. It's Yeah, and getting money. Like, you know, if you have a habit, like you could have a habit, like, you know, I mean, it could be from 100 euro a day to 300 euro a day to, like, it, God knows, you know, like people, like especially with crack cocaine now, which is very, very bad on the streets. You know, a lot of people like there's a lot of addicts now on, on the streets that are using crack cocaine, and that's just like uh, it's constantly go 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 go. You know, and you need another fix and another fix and another fix. So I, I, I actually watched a video last night. Um, someone sent it to me, and it was in um flats in town, mm-hmm. and um, they, like they were doing it in doorway, like selling crack in the doorway, and there was just like about fifty or sixty people queuing up. Do you know what I mean for the crack? Like, and just shows you how much like you know, people are addicted to it, and then the money involved as well. Like, you know. If you were constantly on the go, drugs wise, how were you affording it? Um, crime, cr- crime. Um, at start, and then like, uh, because you get so low, and because you, uh, you get so sick, and then like, um, you're so broken inside that eventually you end up sitting in a, uh, sitting on the streets with a cup in front of you. Okay, there's two things there. The crime wise, what were you doing? What crimes were you committing? Um, just just basically robberies, like you know, um. Simple stuff like if I seen something, I just grab it, like you know, from I a mean, shop or somebody from yeah, somebody's shop, in yeah, the street or like that. yeah, yeah, shoplifting and so stuff shop, like that. That's you know? what, and then you'd sell that on, get the money, sell it and, on, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the second part of that you said was, uh, we call it tapping, where you sit, I end up sitting outside the shop or on a corner bridge with a cup in front of you. Yeah, um, that was my lowest point when I when I hit that stage. Then I decided, um, kind of that life couldn't couldn't go on like this anymore. You know, so um. You know, I I, I meet uh, homeless people quite a lot now, and I, I when I'm if I'm walking along, and I, sometimes I'll stop and say hello, sometimes I won't, but because I don't have time or what have you. But if I do, I often have to, and I say, yeah, not just homeless people, it could be a cha- somebody looking for a charity donation, and I have to say to them, you know, you've got to get a machine or something to tap because no one's carrying cash the way they used to to make a donation. So I would imagine homeless people are, you know. 
stuck for a few quid these days more than ever before because no one's got loose change or whatever yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now as well, uh, it's like, um, it's fairly prevalent. Like, if, like I know there, like, a, a couple of years ago when I was in addiction, like, you wouldn't get, you get a few, but you wouldn't get, like, every shop doorway. But now it seems to be, because I live in town, like, yeah. every doorway you go by, there's people sitting outside with cups, like, and it's to do with the, the crack epidemic, epidemic as well. That's I didn't realise it was that bad. You, oh, you're, it's, you're, it's, you're, it's very bad, like, because, um, like, because I'm doing the tours, like, I, I um, like uh, I'll walk around and I'll meet pe- homeless people. But I know a lot of them as well, and I'll stop and talk. And I always try yeah. and get to find out the latest news, what's going on in the hospitals yeah. and that, you know, and what's yeah. what's on the streets and all. Like I mean, because I bring it into my tours as well, like you know, and they'd be all telling me like so. Well, let's jump a, a little bit. It, it, it suffice to say, Ken, that you you managed to get clean, which is the most important thing. I think it was the the um, Simon Outreach Program that that got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about how that happened? Uh, I was sitting in the streets one day and. Uh, they um they came over to me outreach program, and uh, like because um I, I was I think it was um I was staying in in a hostel time it was a really bad hostel, and uh, they came over to me and they got me a bed in a in a, in a different hospital a hostel that was um that wasn't too bad you know and I stayed I stayed there for a while and then um eventually then I got into a a better hostel that had a single room you know and that's like uh that's a big problem in Dublin as well a lot of a lot of hostels they they have um dorms shared rooms. And it's a, it's a it's a bad bad problem because if you put six eight people addicts, you know like um serious mental health into a room, it's like a, a it's a melting pot, you know. So like um when I got from um one of those type of hostels into a, like a, a hostel with a single room, it was great, you know, because it it, it put me on the road something because you have your own security, you have your own like door, you can lock your door, you know, and it's just a lot better, a lot better, you know. Bit of dignity as well. Bit of dignity as well, like that you know. Goes a long way, I'd say. But it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to get into a hostel that uh, has 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 its own room because a lot of them are just dorms, you know. Yes. So like, um, to get into one of them was great, like you know. So that was a start, and that and, was a start, yeah. Getting clean can't have been easy, given the seriousness of your problem. Um, yeah, getting clean. Um, no, it wasn't easy. You know, it was um, it was like uh, it was two years in the making. I had to like do a lot of work. Like coming off methadone was um the worst experience I've ever had. I, I didn't sleep for 21 days. I had psychosis. Um, my sleep didn't come back properly for, for uh, practically a year. You know, like... Um, What's happening? Is it just your system's reacting yeah, to all of this? Y- yeah, because you're, it's, 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 it's in your body. It's like God. really inside you, like, you know. You must be like eat, be eating away at your insides or something. Then. I don't think it's eating away at your insides. I think it's just, it's in there and it's like, a, it takes a long, long time to, uh, to leave your body. So like... Um, and that, like, think like most people I talked as well say it's about a year before they got their sleep back, like you know. Okay. So like, um, it was, it was like, uh, and then as well, it's like, um, when you come off, you're like a newborn baby because all these feelings that you had suppressed, because it's a blocker, it just pushes you down for yeah. years and years, all, all come back, you know. So you're like, you're happy one minute, you're crying the next, you know. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> so who who's minding you in the middle? Like, if, if you are a baby, you need to be minded. So who's doing you're all in that? A, you're in a, a, a detox center. You're a, like, you're in a place. I was in um, Kundara. Cherry Orchard Hospital you do a six week detox there and I went to a place down in the Phoenix Park called, called Keltoy you done an eight months pro, uh, eight week program there yeah. is that you stay there like and then when I came out then I done Cool Mind Day program so I was there for six months like, all you know. these places and institutions and good people yeah. who are helping broken people as you were once mm. um, are they, they're doing extraordinary work really oh yeah 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 like they are like you know like uh, Kilmine helped me a lot along the way the Simon community like really really helped me a lot along the way you know okay. Ken Evers telling some of his extraordinary story to Ryan Tuberty this morning
Now, one of the buzz phrases of the moment is quiet quitting, which seems to be a description of employees doing what their jobs require them to do and nothing more. Claire Byrne posed the question this morning, are quiet quitters taking control of their work-life balance or are they simply being lazy? To help answer that question, which sounds like it was written by an employer, let's be honest, Claire spoke to Brenda Power, columnist at the Sunday Times and the Irish Daily Mail, and to Erica Bracken, freelance PR and marketing consultant. Brenda, thankfully, came to the discussion prepared. I looked it up. Obviously, it's an import from from the US uh, that wouldn't surprise you. And I found uh, some guidelines for employers to tell how you've got a quiet quitter on your staff. Um, First of all, are they disengaged on a chronic basis? Is their performance only to the minimum set of performance standards? Are they isolated from other members of the team? Do they withdraw from any non-necessary conversations, activities or tasks? Do they attend meetings but not speak? And do their teammates report that they have to take up the slack? Those are quiet quitters. Who knew we were all working with quiet quitters all these years Um, and that what we used to call them in more judgmental times were work shy or clock watchers or jobs words but apparently they were taking control of their work-life balance and you know I can see a lot of sense in it if you work in in, in an industry or a profession or a career where really you are happy with the level at which you have achieved you don't want to bust a gut to be employee of the month if it means not one extra penny in your pay packet and you find that you are just to keep up with what everybody else is doing in the office, answering emails at home, staying half an hour late routinely for no thanks, for no reward, for no benefit. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not do it? Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe it's the employer's fault that people have decided to go down this route. It's the employer's fault, I would say, as much as as maybe colleagues' fault. Because if you're working with somebody who does want to get on and they are putting in the extra hours, you may feel under an obligation without actually stopping to ask yourself, why am I doing this? I I don't want to be the head of division. You know, Mm. I don't want to be promoted one rung up the management level where I'll get an extra 20 quid a week. I'd rather have that time at home. That makes perfect sense to me. The the difficulty is, I suppose, you know, if, if, if this becomes a thing and everybody in your workplace says, well, I'm going to quiet quit. I can absolutely see the benefit of it. You know that there'll be the leaving certs what who came home, who came in every Monday morning, so I did nothing. I watched telly all weekend and they were, their nose wasn't out of the books. You know that there'll be the ones answering their, the, the calls at after hours and they'll be the ones opening their emails at weekends and they'll be the ones who get the promotion. If you're cool with that, I'd say that's fine. Mm-hmm. This is not an option though if you want to be head of division. No, it's not. No, it's not. But I mean, it is maybe about some, maybe not sleepwalking through your career and instead taking control of and assessing what your career goals are, if that, that is what you want. And if you are prepared to trade off the quality of life that you enjoy at the level you're at for that achievement, mm-hmm. then knock yourself out. But if you if you say, look, I do like being able to be home with my kids at five o'clock. I do like being able to shut down my, my computer, turn off my email, switch off my phone when I get home and not answer calls. And I appreciate that time with my family and I'm not going, oh God, there's another call from work. I better answer this. Then, then, then that is the option for you. Mm-hmm. But to me, it sounds like these are people who are quite unhappy in, the, in their work. Not necessarily, I would say. I'd say the opposite. There are people who are quite content with the level they've achieved and they don't want to be mm-hmm. called in at weekends and they don't want to go away on the bonding weekends or the after work drinks. The thing that struck me about it, Claire, it's something women have, I think, complained about for years is the fact that I do not feel that I am maybe properly positioned to 
to, to be promoted or to be visible in the workplace because I am always the one who has to leave at half five to collect the kids from the creche so I can't go for the after work drinks. I am the one who has to leave work um, if, if, if there's a crisis in the school or yeah. if the, the mind, child minder isn't in so I can't volunteer for the extra tasks and that is holding me back. So there is an awareness that if you are not able to contribute at that level in the workplace already that you are hampering your, your career expectations but maybe it's time we, we took a step back and said well is, is, is promotion and advancement in your career the be all and end all yeah, if it is for you go for it if it's not maybe, maybe this is an option Well look these are the questions that people seem to be asking each other we have Erica back on the line now do you think this quiet Hi, quitting Erica is a solution mm-hmm. no if, 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 if people feel under serious pressure they feel overworked mm-hmm. they feel that they're going yes. to meetings that are absolutely pointless every spare minute mm-hmm. they have in their working day is filled by an employer who hates to see you sitting there dawdling as they might see it and that yeah. this is what people have come up with to try and fix that problem yeah, look, absolutely. It's not a solution. The greater solution is that employees treat everyone fairly and offer everyone equal remuneration and equal opportunities that reflects the work and the hours that they put in. However, it's obviously not a perfect world. So we are finding people that are just forced into this, who are they're trying to attempt to create a healthy life work balance when they're consistently overworked with, you know, with hours, with no sign of promotion, no sign of pay increase on the horizon. And I do think there is that difference between, you know, working yourself to the bone day in, day out for inadequate pay um, beyond your your working title and, you know, working at peak times to get the job done, doing more than your job title to help out a colleague or, you know, putting in the extra effort when, you know, there's you know something kind of coming down the line um, and people accept that there will be those times. But you know, I, I do think that no one wants to quite quit. Um, like work is such a big part of our lives. I do think that people, they want to enjoy their work and they want to feel motivated, creative and like respected at work. But they're just kind of being forced into this as a as a last ditch attempt to protect themselves from that burnout. And, it's you know, it's really sad. Erica Bracken, freelance PR and marketing consultant, who, along with Sunday Times columnist Brenda Power, was talking about quiet quitting on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Winter is coming, as they used to say in Westeros. And this year, the big challenge is going to be energy, keeping customers' lights on on the supply side and paying for the supply on the customer's side. On this afternoon's Live Line, Joe Duffy spoke to Lorraine, who's facing a particularly anxious winter. So I have a son, he's seven years of age, his name is Callum, mm. and he is actually currently on um, home dialysis. We're doing that now about 15 months. Okay. He's currently on a transplant list as well. Okay. So please God, um, yeah, yeah. something will happen soon for him. And um, yes, Joe, just in relation to um, what you said there at the very beginning in terms of, of dreading the months ahead, mm-hmm. um, we run our dialysis machine for six nights of the week at home, and that's machine stays on for nine hours when the dialysis is in operation. There's a lot of preparation to get that dialysis machine up and running um, from from the home. So we have the option of setting that machine up in advance. I have two other small children in the house as well. As many of your listeners would appreciate, um, you know, life is very busy. Mm -hmm. 
homework, um, activities, all of those things are um, done in the evening times after school. I, um, I'm on a reduced hours. Um, I'm a teacher in school, so okay. I job share. And it gives me, gives me that time to do some of these procedures that I need to do in order to um, care for Callum and in order for him to be able to go to school and sort of live a normal life like every other child yeah. his age. So I can set that machine up in advance, Joe. So say, for example, take yesterday, for example. Yeah. Um, I collected my three-year-old from the uh, Montessori at 12 o'clock and then I went straight home before I picked up the boys at three and I did my dialysis setup from home in advance. So that machine would have been on from yesterday about two o'clock and then it would run we turn it on then or initiate the programme that evening and then it would run all through the night and then it would be taken off at 7am 7, 7 this morning. So it's pretty So I mean, that has to happen six yeah. days a week, Joe, you know. Um, yeah, just in terms of energy costs, um, like, yeah, we, we also have gas to run our, our heating off and yeah. I'm just dreading the winter months because the gas bill is going to be absolutely enormous now come the winter months. I mean, it already is high and I'm just dreading what will happen. I mean, we put some home improvements into our house um, in order to try and offset some of the costs, put in some solar panels. So obviously, summer months, can't really see the huge difference yet, but Mm -hmm. I know I'm dreading what's coming, if you get me. And Lorraine, do you have to do extra sterilisation? Have you other pumps? Is there any other medical equipment that needs to be plugged in? Yeah, so, okay, so the dialysis will look after Callum's kidney function. Yeah. But Callum also has issues with his bladder and his bowel, and there's certain procedures that we have to do okay. in order to look after those. Yeah. Um, 60, 60, 60% of his nutrition, he will get at nighttime through a peg, so okay. that's a pump yeah. that is just is fed him through a tube, and that also requires electricity. Um, the fluid, actually, Joe, it's worth mentioning this, that the fluid that we need to put onto the dialysis machine, that has to be heat, um, that has to heat up. So okay. we have to, in order for us to do the home dialysis initially, the hospital had to make, make sure that our house was suitable for it yeah. and that we would have had enough space to store all of our equipment. So we would get like a monthly supply of equipment yeah. and we need to store that um, somewhere dry, somewhere warm and safe. I mean, we can't really put it out in a cool garage because that fluid has to be um, certain temperature. kept at a certain yeah. temperature, say, room temperature, and then it heats when it goes onto the machine. And obviously it's not ideal to keep it outside either because, you know, you don't want... Um, you want to keep it hygienic. Or anything yeah, near yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. It has so to be your household, because of Callum's illness, is extraordinarily energy intensive. It would be, Joe. Yeah. yeah and I presume it's the it same be. for people on uh, nebulizers, people who need help with breathing, people who need help yes. with... That. Now, who pays for this? Am I being naive in asking the question? Yeah, OK, well, I mean, we obviously pay for our gas and electricity bills now. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, a lot of the stuff, any supports that we feel, that, you know, we might be entitled to, we have to go Googling it. It's not like we are, mm-hmm. are you know, given this information um, quite easily. We have to kind of look for it, research about it, ask questions. Um, I know there are some tax credits that we do claim, mm-hmm. but since I was just talking to my husband earlier and we were just saying, since 2017, nothing has changed in terms of those tax credits like there's nothing sort of it's not consistent with um you know these um the, the rise of inflation at yeah, the moment of course. 
Um, the no, other thing it, about a tax a tax credit is you you can only you came you claim that after twelve months. That's right. You yeah. pay up front, and then yes. whatever, and you say the tax. I presume there is a tax limit on it. Um, yeah. So, and that hasn't changed. No, that hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. And our appointments up and down to Dublin, I know obviously we're talking about the the cost, particularly with electricity, but even just in terms of the cost of living, putting diesel in your car. I mean, other families oh, will yeah, know when they have regular hospital appointments. I mean, you know, we live in Donegal, so it's um, it's not like we can just nip up the road 20 minutes up and 20 minutes back. It's a full day. And where and is, where is Callum's Hospital? Train. Is it Dublin? Uh, Tampa Street mainly. Oh, Tampa yeah, Street. Okay, Street. well, that's, that's yeah. a massive run. they're fantastic. Run. They're yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But it's a massive run. It's a massive run. And with that, you don't, I mean, the parking over that side of town, oh, um, as you probably are, are aware yourself, Joe, crazy. it's, um, I mean, it's just non-existent. Yeah. You know, it's, you, you could be lucky. So when I drive into Dublin, um, either myself or my husband, um, I don't know if I'm going to make my appointment on time. Yeah. I don't know how long I'm going to be circling to find a space. Yeah. Um, I know there is a car park near the town. We have had issues with that before where the car has been broken into. So it's just, it doesn't, you know, nothing and the, mini- the minimum car parking in Dublin is at least €3, Euro, three twenty an hour. That's the cheapest oh, yeah. I, can, I, mean, I could come across. Yeah, yeah, the on-street parking. I mean, yeah. look, at, you could, you know, if you thought you were only going to be in there for a couple of hours, you could manage that. But, um, you know, quite a lot of the time, Callum will have a lot of overnight stays and he'll have to be admitted. So it's a case of maybe on-street parking for a few hours or paying for a day and then waiting for people to leave the area at night time and then I might have to walk out like at 10 o'clock at night to move my car to bring it back near the hospital again, you know. And the other other thing I'm thinking now, and no one's advocating this, but if, God forbid, Callum had to be in hospital for his dialysis, you don't get an electricity bill, sure you don't. You know what I mean? That is, the state pay for that, rightly so. Yes, that's right. Yeah, if he was in Because it is, the reason he needs the extra electricity is because of his medical condition. That's it. In order for us to keep him at home, he's on um, a type of dialysis that we can do from home called peritoneal. Yeah, okay. So it's not like the one Brilliant. they do in the hospital. Brilliant. But when he Brilliant. is admitted, yeah. um, they will set up the, the peritoneal dialysis machine for myself or my husband to use with Callum. And like that, yeah, we're, we're, we don't get the bill from the hospital for it. But, you know, we're keeping him out of hospital and, yeah. you know, obviously so have a normal life. Which, which, every, which every family wants to do. Yeah, but, absolutely. But when, it, when, when you hear energy costs going up by well over 100, 200%, um, something has to be done, especially for people who are vulnerable. Now, I, think of, I just wonder, because I know the Social Democrats are saying today all the money should be aimed at uh, people who are less well off. Is But in your situation, for example, are you means tested? I'm just wondering. Sorry. Hello, sorry. Yeah, I was uh, just moving room. Sorry. Is is there a, is there a means test? Is there a means test in terms of of your uh, eligibility for assistance? Well, um, in terms of our, our tax credit, obviously that's going to be based yeah. on. But you, um, that, you have to be working to get a tax credit. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's true too. Um, no, I'm saying, you know, the, no, I'm saying the point I'm making, sorry, Lorraine, is that yeah. the, the big campaign now is for, and you know the argument, oh, the, the government help should be targeted to those who yeah. are unemployed or whatever, rightly so, yeah. but yeah. it invariably means, when they say that, invariably means no one, no one else should get anything. 
Um, yeah, well, I know. Yeah, which is look, it's very unfair. Like myself and my husband, you know, we work hard. We try to um, keep things as normal as possible. We pay all our bills. We have mortgages, like any most families in Ireland. Um, but it's just that we just feel that if the government or somebody could, you know, talk to people like ourselves mm-hmm. that are using all this type of medical equipment at home and say, look, here's some support. Um, you know, look into this. You could be eligible for this. We understand, you know, that um, this, you have to have your electricity running for X amount of time, you know, um, and just, just, okay. just and now approach is- us and give us a little bit of support. Lorraine on this afternoon's Live Line talking to Joe Duffy about her fears for her son's home dialysis treatment if the energy crisis leads to power cuts this winter. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, reliance on our phones for directions, among many, many other things, was up for discussion on Today with Claire Byrne this morning and Dr Sabine Brennan, health psychologist and neuroscientist, Join Claire to tease out the effects of phones on our memories and imaginations. There's not a lot of research on this, but what research there is does indicate that we use, you know, similar brain processing actually occurs, whether we use, uh, you know, a map on your phone or make a spatial map in your brain. Um, But with the phone, um, there's less flexibility and less learning occurs. You know, we don't learn as much about our environment and... You know, when you make a spatial map in your brain and you make a mistake, you can kind of figure out where you might go. You know, you might figure out an alternative route, but we've all been there sort of with that sat-nav thing when it goes wrong and and you're kind of driving along and you kind of go, come on, hurry up, hurry up, recalibrate, tell me where to go. But there is, interestingly, some research that shows a link between autopilot uh, you know, so autopilot, there's, there's a, a, a certain mode in a network in our brain called the default mode network, which activates when we're not actively engaged in a task. And it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's a good network. It's not a bad network, but um, it's an over-reliance on it has been linked to amyloid development in later life. Um, and amyloid development is associated with al- Alzheimer's disease. And, it, you know, one of the early signs of Alzheimer's disease is a loss of spatial orientation, you know, so people getting lost in places they should be familiar with. Mm-hmm. So there's been a tentative link between, you know, that over-reliance on the autopilot, you know, our over-reliance on GPS, you okay. know what I mean? But, so, but, but, but on the other side of this, Sabina, if I'm using my phone for directions or if I'm using it for a recipe that I should really be able to remember, is my brain not freed up then? to do other things. I'm, I'm hardly being completely, uh, you know, disengaged at that oh, point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, so that's particularly just on maps there. You know, I mean, say when you're cooking, as you said, people used to keep recipes in their head and now we kind of Google them. Um, and I think it's a bit of both. And I think balance is key. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I think try to resist looking up things that you might already know. You know, engage your brain power, say if it's a recipe for pancakes or something that you just should know. Um, But I also think, you know, it's 
there's no harm in looking up recipes because when you look up a recipe, another one might pop up and you might be tempted to try a new one. Um, and, and, you know, novelty and learning and trying new things, even just trying new foods, they're all brilliant for your brain health um, because they promote neuroplasticity and boost resilience in your brain. So, you know, it's, as with a lot of things, it's a bit of balance. So, you know, you know, Push your brain power to remember stuff that you should know, but also there's absolutely no problem in kind of looking up recipes because, you know, you might find something interesting and try something interesting. And, and with phone numbers, I mean, we used to know phone numbers off by heart. We don't anymore because we don't need to. Is that something that we should try at least to retain? You know what, that's kind of a cohort thing, really. There used to be a huge difference between young and old people in that ability, but I think that's changing as we all get older. You know, older generations use cohorts. You know, they use mobile phones now as well. I don't know the benefit of that necessarily, you know, remembering numbers. We all used to remember our bank account details and everybody's, you know, phone numbers, you know, all those kind of numbers. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I think it's, the thing is really mental processes like remembering, thinking, problem solving, paying attention, they're all high energy activities. And, you know, your brain in an effort to make the best use of available energy will avoid expending, you know, energy unnecessarily. So we, as humans, we'll avoid expending effort when solving problems and, and smartphones represent an excellent opportunity to save energy by outsourcing outsourcing tasks like that to an external de- device so hmm. google maps looking up recipes looking up facts or being able to store phone numbers in a vo- phone or looking up solutions on how-to videos al- online you know they not only allow us to get us to our destination or help us bake a cake or change a plug or even win an argument um, there's nothing wrong with that, but they also free up resources that we could use um, to do something else. And I, I think that is the key, really, in a way, okay, is so whether you use those freed resources to do something else yeah, keep, or keep you challenging, don't do anything keep... with them. Dr. Sabina Brennan, health psychologist and neuroscientist, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about how our dependence on our phones affects our memories and abilities. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.